0: Mark chapter 15. Jesus had spent his last day on earth, or at least before he died, under fire at five different trials. Two trials by Jewish leaders, the former high priest Annas, and then the current high priest Caiaphas. And they charged him with blasphemy that he claimed to be the very Son of God. So they sent him on because they were not able to perform an execution themselves. They sent him on to the Roman rulers. And the Roman leaders had three trials. One was with Pilate. The first one was with Pilate. Pilate then sent him on to Herod because he didn't want to make a determination about his fate. So he sent him on to Herod. Herod was happy for Jesus to come because he wanted to see Jesus perform some signs in front of him. But Jesus said not a word. So Herod sent him back to Pilate for a third trial. And it is there that we studied last week. Pilate, because of the fear of the crowd and of the Jewish leaders, he chose to convict him because he had supposedly usurped the throne of the Roman rule, calling himself the king of the Jews so in that way he was putting himself up against Caesar and he didn't want to fall out of favor with Caesar. So he handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified just as the people wanted. Well, Pilate sends him off to be flogged before he is crucified. And throughout the beating of Jesus, he was mocked. They mocked Him. They put a robe on Him. They put a crown of thorns, a mock crown of thorns. They they mocked, kissed Him by spitting on Him. And uh, the mocking continued as they led Him to the cross. And as He was on the cross, the mocking continued. The thieves on the cross themselves even mocked Him. People from the crowd were saying, if you are the Christ, then come down save yourself. And... And then the final stroke of abandonment came from perhaps the most unsuspecting place from the hand of His Father when His Father turned His back on Him. Jesus bore the Father's wrath on our behalf. He took upon Himself judgment so that you and I would not have to. And this judgment that comes upon Jesus that was not deserved by any means by Him it's seen most clearly in this passage that we will look at this morning. We'll read again verses 33 through 41. And we'll see this darkness that falls upon the land. Verse 33 of chapter 15. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This darkness that comes upon the land was both literal and symbolic. It was literal darkness. That, the, that at the height of the sun, something obstructed its view, according to Luke. And God miraculously caused the land to be dark. So it was literal darkness, but it was also symbolic. We talked about this last week, that it was symbolic of judgment, as we saw in Exodus when the when one of the last plagues came down on the land of Egypt, it was a symbol of God's judgment coming on those people for rejecting God. The same sort of darkness will come at the sixth seal judgment in Revelation. When God will uh, pour out literal darkness upon the people, they will not be able to see their hand in front of their face in the realest sense. And yet, it's symbolic of God's judgment that's coming upon them for rejecting Him. And so in this judgment, we see that Christ bore our sins. That Christ took upon Himself judgment. This communion that He had with God that He enjoyed eternally was now broken when He temporarily was severed from that relationship as He died the sinner's death that we all deserve. And so on the cross, Jesus both bore our guilt and our sin and He also bore our punishment. God's wrath was coming upon Him. It wasn't, as I said last week, that, the, that there was a nice little shiny light coming down just on Jesus. The rest of the land was dark. It, it wasn't a sense that, that the judgment was coming upon them for rejecting Jesus, but it was also coming upon Jesus because He was made sin for us. This was an unspeakable sacrifice because Jesus had enjoyed this perfect union with God, this perfect fellowship with God eternally. Turn back to chapter 1 and we'll see what pleasure God has in His Son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 11. Let's begin in verse 9. We'll see the context here. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's nothing greater that God can say about His Son. You are My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There is no wrong in you. There is no evil in you. You are a perfect representation of Me. Look over to chapter 9, verse 7. God says it again. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John go up with Jesus and they meet in Moses and Elijah up there. And then we hear God speak. Verse 7, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. God refers to His Son again as beloved. Now turn over to chapter 15. Because now what we see is not that God calls His Son beloved. Instead, He pours out upon His Son A curse. Look at chapter 15, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we see in this verse is that God has forsaken him in the sense that he poured upon him the judgment that we deserved. Throughout Jesus' life, God had come down at specific times and said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. Here He says, this is My cursed Son whom I am pouring out upon Him My judgment. Not because of anything that He had done, but because of our sin. God does love His Son. We'll talk about that as we advance through this study today. But we see that God loves His Son um, and that, that His love was proven in the resurrection. When God raised Him from the dead, He proved that that curse was, was satisfied. That, that curse that He poured out upon His Son was satisfied for the sins of the world. And that the, the sacrifice that Jesus made was sufficient for all people who would turn to Him. And why did Christ have to die? Why did He have to die? Well, we know from the study of the Old Testament that God's infinite wrath had to be poured out upon sin. God hates sin. God is a holy God, as we sang the first, very first song this morning. God is a holy God, and He cannot look on sin. He hates sin. So there has to be some way in which His wrath is satisfied. And we know from Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So blood had to be shed, and it had to be shed according to the Old Testament by a spotless lamb, a perfect, without blemish lamb. It had no spot or wrinkle, no broken bones. And only the God man could do this. You see, you and I could not die for our own sins. You and I could not die for someone else's sins, because we are corrupt. We are not perfect. God demanded a perfect sacrifice, and so only a perfect being could be sacrificed. We see if Jesus remained in, in the spiritual state for, for all of His life, in other words, if He never became human, He would not be able to die because spirits do not die. God is spirit. And so Jesus had to become man in order for Him to die. If there is going to be any salvation from sin, Christ would have to die, because only a true human could suffer and die, and only a truly divine person could give that suffering infinite value. See, Jesus Christ, because he is infinite, can can pay for the infinite payment that we have uh, placed on our account because of our sin. We are finite. We cannot pay for this infinite debt that is against us. So, as much as we did, even if we could do righteous deeds one right after another, it would not pay for our sins. We need an infinite payment, and only an infinite God in the form of man could make that payment. So, we see a little bit more about the meaning of Christ's death. Now, let's look at the love of Christ's death in verses 38 through 41. The love of Christ's death. Before we look at these verses, I want you to think about something with me. When you look at the cross, do you often think that it is Jesus who is the one who is loving? I mean, after all, He was the one who gave His life. What did the Father actually have to do? I mean, did the Father really sacrifice anything? Or, have you ever thought, how could God actually abandon His own Son? Why would the Father actually do that? Well, we'll look at a passage later in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that says that God did not spare up His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. It's actually the greatest act of love that God could show to us in sacrificing His own Son. See, God did not spare His own Son. And the reason that it pleased the Father to crush Him, Isaiah 53.10, was so that you could have life. He actually did it for you. And so while it doesn't look like a very loving act for God to, to lay out His Son and sacrifice Him, it was actually the pinnacle of God's love for you. Notice the result of Christ's death in verse 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, at the cross, God both judged... And loved his son at the same time. It's like a father disciplining his child. He does it out of love, but still there has to be judgment because of the the sin that was transgressed, or a judge giving a, a, a just sentence to his son. Certainly, in his heart, he doesn't want to, but as a judge, he is he has to. Now, there's lots of other things going on back to our text here in, in verse 38. that the, We see that the veil of the temple is torn in two. There's lots of other things that Mark didn't record. I'll read for you what Matthew records in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. He says, And the earth shook, okay, after Jesus breathed His last, the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And Coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to man. In our passage, Mark records for us that the temple was torn in two. And so I want that to be our focus for the next couple minutes. We need to understand what the purpose of the temple curtain was. This this veil of the temple um, was an elaborately woven fabric of, of 72 twisted plates of 24 threads each. And it was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 because Hebrews chapter 9 because we'll see here what the purpose of this veil in the temple was. Why did the people of Israel have a veil in the temple? Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. Verse 2, "...for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread." This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Okay, So what do we learn from these verses that the veil does in the temple? It separates these two sections of the temple, the holy place, from this most sacred place, the holy of holies. And you remember from the Old Testament that the holy place is where God's glory resided, where that glory cloud would come down. You see it at the end of Exodus most prominently prominently when they set up this tabernacle and and they do it exactly how God wants it. And then finally, after all this work, after all this time, after being in captivity in Egypt for so long, they're now here in the wilderness, but they have a tabernacle where God's glory actually comes and dwells among them. And so this veil that that we read about in Mark chapter 15, don't turn back there yet, but is actually designed to, to keep people out of this special place where God's glory resided. This Holy of Holies. It was this huge 60 by 30 foot curtain. No one was allowed to enter except for the high priest on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Only one time per year. Now, why did this temple veil tear? Look at chapter 9, verse 11. The writer of Hebrew helps us a little bit more to understand what the purpose of this temple was, what the purpose of this veil was, and why it tore. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus Christ died, He made these temple sacrifices obsolete. No longer would they need to come to God to offer these sacrifices. That, that the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was the finished work of, of God. That, that was all that God demanded. So now what we find here in verse 12 is that He actually enters into God's presence. Okay, so imagine Him going from the holy place into the holy of holies through His death. This temple veil is torn into, and Jesus enters. And He can only do so having lived a perfect life. Look at verse 24 with me. Verse 24, "...For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true One, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he explains he didn't actually go into that temple. Okay, If you went into the temple at that time and looked, saw this torn veil and looked inside the Holy of Holies, probably for the first time in your life since no one was allowed to go in there except once a year and only a priest. You looked inside this place and you saw Jesus sitting there on the mercy seat. No. What Hebrews tells us is that no, he didn't go into the actual holy place made with hands. Instead, He's appearing in the presence of God. Again, we have something that is symbolic of what is really happening. And that is that Jesus is entering into the presence of God. Look at verse 25. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often as the high priest enters the holy place place year by year with blood that is not His own. Otherwise, He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, At the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Jesus Christ tore that veil, entered into the holy place for the final time. The holy of holies for the final time. No longer would we have to come with sacrifices, give them to the priest, The priests come in and and offer them to God for our sins. Otherwise, He'd have to come year after year and, and... Jesus would have to be sacrificed over and over again, but because he, His person is of infinite value, so is His sacrifice. That it negates. It, it makes obsolete all of the sacrifices that were required of us. You see, Jesus entered into God's presence both to satisfy God's wrath, wrath by becoming a sacrifice Himself and to become our advocate where we now can enter into the Holy of Holies ourselves, not into the, the temple, the literal temple, where we would go in there and, and, and be among God's presence. No, now through Jesus Christ, we can actually enter God's throne and be, be near God. And that is something that we will enjoy uh, personally and physically for all of eternity. So what should our response be to this tearing of the, of the veil? Turn to chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 10. What should our response be? If Jesus Christ made the way for us to get into the holy of holies and to provide, and He provided the sacrifices once for all, what should our response be? Here's what the writer of Hebrew tells us in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. writer of Hebrews says, our response to Jesus now making the way possible for us to, to be in the presence of God is to go boldly before His throne. Do not be uh, fearful of what God will do for us because we stand there not on the basis of anything that we have done, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. Now, we can boldly go before God and say, God, on the basis of Jesus Christ, I stand before You. In the Old Testament, I would not be able to do this. But because of His sacrifice, because He is my advocate, I stand before you and I gladly confess my love for you and I gladly offer my requests before you. Turn back to chapter 15 of Mark and we'll look at the intended response of Christ's death. Chapter 15, verse 39. Verses 39-41. through 41, The intended response of Christ's death. Now, we would expect for there to be many male Jews who responded to the death of Jesus in a proper way. After all, Jesus was a Jew Himself, and so we would expect for Him to have lots of people come and accept Him and recognize His death and and its worth. But what's interesting is that Mark records for us, not the response of male Jews, although there were some, but he records for us a Gentile soldier and a group of women. Look at verse 39. When a centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he had breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You can imagine that as a Roman soldier, this man had seen many crucifixions before. He had seen many people fight against the leaders of the time. And yet here, he notices something different about Jesus. He handles death differently than all the others. And it says that when He saw that He had breathed His last, He said, this man surely was the Son of God. Now, we know from other Gospels that He also recognized all the things that were going on at the same time, right? The The earthquake, the darkness that had been there for three hours. And when He reflected on that, along with, I think, His knowledge of Uh, Jesus Christ up to that point. Then he said with fear before God that this man was the Son of God. Now, the centurion probably did not have a complete understanding of who Jesus was and what the cross meant, but neither did the disciples, remember? They don't understand why Jesus is dying at this point. In fact, John writes, and and Luke does as well, that, that after the resurrection was when they finally realized they they started to think back and say, oh, well, now I understand. They, di- they didn't understand the meaning of Christ's death like we do looking back on it. So they're still confused about what this means. And so the point is, is that they used all the revelation that they had up until that point. And I would say the same thing about the centurion. That he rightly responded to the revelation that he had received from God. And although it wasn't a complete understanding perhaps of the virgin birth and and of what justification means. and he, he believed in God and he recognized that this man was the Son of God. That He was God in human flesh. And so we have a Gentile apparently coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so perhaps part of Mark's reasoning in recording that for us is that he wants us to see that the Gospel is not just for Jews. Isn't this part of what we saw in Jesus' ministry that He begins in Jerusalem and in the area around His his own land, but then His own did not receive Him. John 1.11 They did not receive Him and so He went to the Gentiles. And, and we find that you don't have to be a Jew to come to Christ. And we see this even more in Acts that that as many as received Him, John 1.12, to them gave He the right, the privilege to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on His name. You don't have to be of a certain race to come to Jesus Christ. And so Mark records for us this stark picture of this Gentile who would normally hate a Jew, showing that that, that the Gospel is going beyond the Jewish people. But also, ladies, There are ladies who are following Christ at this time. Verses 40 and 41. There are also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Luke records that there was also Mary the wife of Clopas. So we have... At least three Marys here, along with um, Salome, which is James and John's mom, the wife of Zebedee, and um, and we have these Marys: versus Mother Mary, mother of James, Joseph, and uh, the mother of James the left, excuse me, and of of Joseph. And we know from John chapter 19 that this was his mother; that um, she was standing near. Remember when when uh, Jesus said to his mother or to John, excuse me, who was standing there. He said, John, behold my mother. And um, and he asked basically John to take care of his mother from this time forward. So John's standing there as well at the foot of the cross. That was probably, I believe that was earlier in the crucifixion. This is at the end. They're actually standing far off according to our passage. They probably couldn't bear the the um, the horrific picture of him dying there. So we have his mother standing near him. And then Mary Magdalene, according to Luke 8.2, Jesus had driven out seven demons from this woman. And so she had this great love for Him, this great desire to follow Him. And many people believe she's the same woman who was the former prostitute who washed His feet in Luke chapter 7. But in addition to these three women that Mark mentions, in verse 41 he says there at the end there were many other women who... Uh, who used to follow him, many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And I think the point is here that he's point he's trying to make the the uh, the point that, that it's not the gospel is not just meant for males. We have twelve male followers, and many of the people who come to Christ are men. But here we see that we have all these women who are following jesus christ. and And if you understand the Jewish mindset in that day, then you understand what a statement this is. That women were actually following Jesus as well as Gentiles. The typical Jewish prayer during that time sounded something like this. I think this was actually something they prayed every day. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. You see, these Jewish men felt like they were superior to all others. And for... Mark to record that there were women standing at the cross. And we find also, we'll see at the resurrection, that the two women are the ones who come and, and come to care for His body after He has been buried. And what we should learn from this is that the, the scope of God's love does not stop with a specific people group or a certain gender. The scope of God's love spreads to all people, both Jew and Gentile, Male and female, slave and free, for Christ is all in all. Doesn't matter what station in life you are, Christ has offered salvation to you as well. Now let's go back to this point that I brought up earlier, and that is God's love for us. How could God show his love to his Son on the cross, and how could he show his love to us? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 32. This is the verse that I quoted earlier. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Have you ever questioned God's love for you? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you're looking at the things that are going on right now and have asked the question, where is God? Where is God's love for me? If you've ever questioned that, I think we all have as believers. We've, we've felt like we were all alone and that God didn't care for us. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Notice what it says he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You question what God has given to you, what kind of plot in life, or what kind of lot in life you have. You need to look no farther than the cross. If God gave to you, here's the argument that's being Laid out for us in chapter eight, verse thirty-two. If God gave to you His most prized possession, the the best thing that He could possibly offer, His own Son, and did He? Yes, He did. If He did, then why would He not be willing to give you out all these other things? Now you say, but but it's not working that way. Okay, there there is no good in my life right now. My health has failed. My finances are in disarray. My job is a wreck. My family life is turmoil. There is no good in life. How can there be any hope? The only response I can give to you is this God never promised you a good job, God never promised you a perfect family life, or a big bank account, or perfect health. But God did promise you something much greater than that. He promised you salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there is nothing greater that we can receive in this life. You see, sometimes we take on an entitlement mentality that, well, I'm saved, yeah, I understand that, that's great, but I need more. how, How can I possibly be happy in God if I don't have the things that I want or need? God says, you question my love for you. You question when that person in your family is taken from you. You question when that health uh, diagnosis comes down upon you. Look back to the cross and see how I poured out my love for you on my Son. I cursed my Son for you. You see, I cursed Him so that you would never have to be cursed. Do you understand what I did there? I, I broke fellowship with Him so you would never have broken fellowship with me so that you can now enter into my holy place and have presence and have joy with me forevermore. As Christians, we feel the hurt sometimes in life and we don't understand what God is doing. But you see, when you feel that God does not love you, when you when that thought creeps into our head, and it does at times, then our hope, is in those things. We need those things taken care of, but God never promised you those things. Look at chapter 8, verse 28. Here's a verse we often quote to ourselves in times of, of distress, in times of confusion. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It, usually we stop right there. Sometimes we stop at... God causes all things to work together for good. We say that in everybody's life, God is working together for good, but we notice that it's qualified by those who are called according to his purpose that is, believers. He works out everything for his glory and our good if we're believers. But then we say, okay, well, then what is good? Because the good, I don't see any good around me right now. I'm looking, I don't see it. Notice what this good looks like in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Verse 29 says that He predestined them to do what? What kind of good is God accomplishing in your life? What is this greatest good that He could possibly do for you. Yes, it is salvation, but it is after salvation, it is conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so everything that happens in your life that doesn't seem like it's good coming from God, it is good. It is God changing you more and more into the image of Christ. It's not punishment. The punishment was already taken care of on the cross, right? He punished Christ so that He wouldn't have to punish you and me. No, what God is doing for us is He's pouring about upon us His love. And there's nothing greater than he, that He can do for you than to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. So whatever type of circumstance you're in, I can give you hope that God is doing it for your good if you are called according to His purpose. If you love God, He is doing it for your good. If you ever question the love of God, simply look back to what he did for you at the cross. He could not display his love in any greater way. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, he says, Paul says, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. You know why? Because of the very last five words in the verse, verse says, In Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason that Paul cannot be separated. The reason that you and I cannot be separated from the love of God is because, or is only because, we are in Jesus Christ. So you should not question God's love for you. Now, what's amazing is that in the Old Testament, you see God's wrath talked about over and over again and God's love. And sometimes they're in verses that are back to back and you can't understand. As an Old Testament believer, how could they possibly understand both God's love or God's wrath and God's love? They don't seem to mix. You can either have one or the other, God's wrath or God's love. And so it's like there's two tracks running side by side throughout all of human history until they meet at one place, at the cross, where we see both God's wrath poured out upon His Son and His love as well. And now on this side of the cross we can look back at God's wrath and God's love and we can say, Now I see. God's wrath was satisfied, and the greatest way that he could display his love for both us and his son was to give judgment to him in our place. See, every person is born. Every person who is born is destined for God's wrath. We are born as enemies of God. We hate Him. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are spiritually dead. We are cut off from God. In order to stand rightly before God, He requires a perfect sacrifice and perfect obedience. But but you see, Jesus or God did not just leave us without any hope. He gave us Jesus Christ who satisfied both that requirement for a perfect sacrifice and the requirement for a perfectly obedient life. And so now... If you are a believer, the veil between you and God has been torn in two. And you can walk through on the basis of your standing in Jesus Christ. No longer do you have to try to work your way up to God's favor. You don't have to do enough things in order for God to be happy with you. He's happy with you because you are in Christ. Now, well, Certainly, we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we we can like we can to our parents. We can grieve our parents. So that doesn't make us any less one of their children, right? Because the veil has been torn, we can come boldly to the throne of grace on the basis of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free. Christ provides for us access to God. And while God demands perfection, we cannot meet that perfect standard in its place God requires or accepts faith in Jesus Christ who was perfect and so I'd encourage you if you have not turned to Jesus Christ that, that today is a great day to do that in fact there's no better day for you to do it than today you don't know how much longer you will live here on this earth James says that life is a vapor it appears for a little while and then it vanishes away So I'd encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ today. And if you are a believer, then take great joy in the love that God showed for you in no greater way than He did on the cross when He crucified, when He sacrificed His own Son so that you would not have to do it for yourself. So that you would not have to take upon yourself the judgment that you deserve. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled as we look into Your Word this morning. We are humbled because we do feel entitled at times to more from You. We feel as if You aren't showing Your love to us enough. And that we should uh, have a better life. We look at some of the wicked people in this world and we think, If they're that wicked and they have that good of a life, then why don't I have a better life than they? But we understand from Your Word this morning that that is very nearsighted on our part. And that it shows to us, reveals our own heart and how, how little we understand the cross. What a great sacrifice our Savior made. He did... He laid down His life for us and took upon Himself Your wrath. And when we think of that, for all those here who have trusted in Him, we are amazed and humbled. It wasn't because He saw potential in us or because we did anything righteously, but it was simply because of Your mercy. So we pray that You'd help us to live in light of the cross and that we would never grow tired of learning about it and reflecting on it. And we pray that even in the time to follow as we remember His death through the observance of the Lord's Supper, that we would reflect on His mercy, Jesus' mercy for us. If there is anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that, that they would have their eyes opened by the power of Your Spirit that their lives would be changed. We pray for us as believers that You would be changing us and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ and that we would not see anything that comes from Your hand that is anything in life as evil coming from Your hand or something bad, but actually something good for our own conformity May we take pleasure in knowing that You are in control and You are lovingly leading us to the best place that we can be. Give us the grace to respond to Your Word today. In Jesus' name, Amen.